So I think it's always good to start with the why. Like, why are we studying Romans? And we're studying Romans for two reasons. Two basic reasons. There's probably a lot more than two, but two basic reasons. The first one is, if you look throughout church history, you will see person after person whose lives were completely changed, not just by the gospel, not just by the word of God, but by specifically Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, If you look all the way back to one of the earliest church fathers, St. Augustine, that his whole view of life was changed by the book of Romans. Martin Luther was studying to be an attorney and he was, uh, he was being just kind of a good religious person of the day. And then he read the book of Romans and, and, and came to fall in love with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. John Calvin, the great uh, French theologian, French slash Swiss, 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 um, he said that if you're going to understand Scripture, the whole of the Bible, you have to understand Romans. And then, and then uh, John Wesley, the great, uh, the great Methodist and Arminian theologian, that, that he was actually converted after years of fruitless ministry. He was converted at a Bible study where they were, they were studying specifically Luther's commentary on Romans. And these are just a few of the, the big names in church history that you can find countless other people, probably people just like me and you, who were just kind of like going along their everyday lives, just doing the things that people do. And they read Romans and everything became different. Everything was changed. But the other reason that we're doing it is because, um, like, I, like, I'm not sure, like, I don't know why you're here tonight again. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you are. I don't, I, don't, I don't know your exact story or situation, what got you here, but I would love to know it, and I will buy you coffee to talk about it or lunch. So one-on-ones, that's a thing. We're here for it. Um, but I do know this uh, because a long time ago I went to college, and I sort of remember it. College is exhausting. Um, we haven't even been in school a full week here, and I'm already having the conversation with a lot of you that are like, oh, my gosh, I'm just so tired. Like, we, we've been here for four days of class, y'all, and you're already wiped out, right? And what's, what's going to happen is in, those, in that circumstance, y'all, even the strongest, quote-unquote strongest, Christians are going to wear down. Their faith is going to become weak and thin. And, and if you're anything like I was as a freshman in college, you're sitting around and, you, and you're looking at yourself, you're like, I ain't one of the strong ones. Like, I'm already, I'm already wiped out. I'm already kind of losing it. And, and that can be a scary situation. That can be a scary place. And that's not completely different than the people that Paul wrote this letter to, to the church in Rome. They were living in a world that was really hard for them to understand. There was, there was persecution, um, and there were, there were all these different calls of the gospel to live in certain ways, to, to die to certain things. And they were starting to wonder, like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to continue to profess the name of Christ in a, a city-state where I might be, literally be fed to lions? Is it worth it to die to myself and to die to some of my own passions and the things I want to do in order to follow Jesus? Other, other ways look more fun. They look easier. Is it worth it? And what Paul is saying here in the book of Romans is that, yes, it is absolutely worth it. And so what I want us to begin with tonight 
is this simple question, what is the gospel? And why is Paul so excited about it? Um, because Paul's pretty excited about it. So uh, I have right here on the, on the th- what it, projector, that's what it's called. I know basic English. Um, I only, th- these are like, if you're the kind of person that likes to take notes or follow along, you certainly don't have to. We're going to keep this up so you can kind of keep track of where we are. Um, but the gospel is good news about something that happened that we are not ashamed of. So good news, something that happened that we are not ashamed of. So the gospel is the good news. And it's not just the good news, it's the good news of God. And here's the thing. The, the title of this whole series is good news for people who love bad news. Both because I liked Modest Mouse when I was in college, and like two of you will get that reference. But also because you actually love bad news. When I say that, you're like, no, that's crazy. Nobody loves bad news. I don't, I don't, I don't want bad news. But you love bad news. See, whenever you get on YouTube or Instagram or any, anything that kind of has an algorithm that decides what content that you see, the designers behind that have designed that algorithm so that it will show you things that make you angry. That it will show you things that will get you deeper in the wormhole of just being furious. Because that's how they know they keep you in, right? Like you, you're going to, you're going to lock in on the stuff that, um, that just makes you mad. And a lot of times that is bad news. It's bad news of things that are happening in the world. You love news stories that only serve your confirmation bias, that you have a particular opinion of how things are and you either, you just love the things that just kind of feed that. We love self-help books. You go into any bookstore and self-help books are going to be like the main thing that are like, hey, like buy this book and you're probably going to buy it because self-help is actually just the bad news that fixing yourself is up to you. And you're anxious and depressed because you live in a world that has conditioned you to be anxious and depressed. That's just how it works. But Paul is writing to the people in Romans and and by extension to us to say that, no, I have good news. Like in a world that is obsessed with bad news, in a world that loves bad news, I'm actually bringing to you good news. That this is the gospel of God. And yo, we love the word gospel. This is a Christian university, right? We put gospel in everything. Gospel is an amazing marketing strategy. You put gospel in the title of any book and you're probably gonna sell like 500,000 copies. Like, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered like Minecraft, like gospel-centered, like whatever, gospel-centered something. But what does this word mean? What does the word gospel mean? Look what Paul says in in, uh, chapter one, verse one, he says that he is called to be an apostle of the gospel of God. And so this is not just any good news. It's God's good news. And uh, uh, Tim Keller, Tim Keller is a pastor that I love. I read all of his books. I'm going to quote him a lot. You're going to wonder, do I ever talk about anything other than Tim Keller? And just wait until you like get me talking about my favorite band, because I do talk about other things, just not often. Um, But Keller says this, put most simply, the gospel is an announcement. It is a declaration. The gospel is not advice to be followed. It is good news about what has been done. That the word gospel in the Greek literally means the good message or the good word. But Paul is saying that this is not his idea. This is not something that he's come up with on his own. 
He says this is God's idea. And look at what he says in verse 2. God promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Y'all, this is huge. The gospel was the plan all along. We're going to get into what the content of that is in just a second. But what Paul is saying here, and this is a theme we're going to say. One of the things I love about Romans is that Paul is always tracing this stuff, like this New Testament stuff, back to the Old Testament. Paul is making all kinds of Old Testament connections. And, and if, you, if you actually look in the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus, uh, after Jesus dies and comes back to life, he's walking down the road with two of his disciples. And they're like, they're just distraught because like, oh man, like Jesus died, this is the worst. And Jesus is like, hey, um, the, the Old Testament said this was going to happen, right? Like, and, and, and it actually says that um, Jesus sat down with those disciples and showed him everything in the Old Testament that pointed to him. And that's amazing. Because when you go back and you read in your Bible and you read about David and Moses and Abraham and you read about all the other, all the prophets and the guys that have really hard names to pronounce and you read about like the sacrificial systems, like if you've ever read through uh, the book of Leviticus, congratulations, but also like everything in Leviticus is about Jesus. It's all about Christ. That this is by design, it's not an accident. But it's a, it's a, it's a, complete, it's a complete paradigm shift. Like everything, after you realize this, everything is different. Um, how many of you have at least heard of the movie, The Sixth Sense? Okay, so that, okay, that, that makes me feel a little better. Um, I'm about to spoil it, but I watched it when I was in seventh grade. So if you haven't seen it by now, like you just don't want to. Um, so if you don't want The Sixth Sense spoiled, plug your ears. Um, but The Sixth Sense is a movie starring Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment. I don't remember their, I don't remember their names in the movie at all. But Haley Joel Osment's this little kid who, who has this thing, this sixth sense, where uh, he can see and communicate with dead people. And so Bruce Willis is this like child psychiatrist, and he's going and meeting with them. And uh, they start, like, Haley Joel Osment's like, he's, con- he's communicating with the dead people, and he's figuring out, like, why they died and, like, what was going on. And the, the whole movie is, like, super creepy, but you're like, oh, this is great. Until the very end of the movie... When the big plot twist is that Bruce Willis's character was dead the entire time. And so when you go back, I know, I'm sorry, that's, well, I, I gave you plenty of spoiler alerts, so chill out. But when you, when, you, when you go back, like you have to go back and rewatch the movie because you're like, oh, that, like, that makes sense, I see that, whatever. And it completely changes the way that you watch the movie. And so this is Paul's invitation to us to start to reimagine the Old Testament in light of Christ. It is an invitation for us to go back and read those difficult passages that we just don't know what to do with sometimes and to read those in light of the person in the work of Jesus. And so this is the good news of God. This is the good news that something has happened and because of that, everything is different. Right? Paul, Paul builds his argument throughout the book, this, through, throughout this thing um, called proposition, right? That... He's building the argument that if this is true, then this follows, right? If then. And Paul, he did the whole book. He's like, if this, then this. And that's what he does. And you live your life propositionally whether you, th- whether you think you do or not. And we'll explore that more the rest of the semester. But here's what I want you to take away from this particular, this particular idea. That think about good news 
compared to good advice, right? There's, there's, um, there's roughly 50 of y'all here. Uh, and, and if I went around and asked all 50 of you to say, what is the gospel? Every one of you would probably have a slightly different definition. But one of the, one of the definitions of the gospel that, I, that just absolutely like makes me furious, sort of. Yeah, it does. It makes me furious. Is when you're like, hey, how do you define the gospel? It's like, well, to me, the gospel just means like love God and love people. That's not the gospel. That's really good advice. Like hear, like, hear this from the RUF guy. Yes, you should love God and love people. Please do that, right? But that's not good news. That's good advice. It's not the gospel. Think about, the, think about these two scenarios. Like, let's say that I stood up here and I said, hey, y'all, I've got five easy steps. If you follow these five easy steps in your four years of college, you will graduate with all A's, you will have no debt, and you will have a well-paying job immediately after graduation. Also, you'll be socially well-adjusted and people will generally think well of you. All you have to do is follow these five easy steps. Or imagine that I stood here and I said, hey, look, no matter what, you're gonna graduate with all A's. You're not gonna have any debt, you're gonna have a well-paying job, and you're gonna have very rich and deep and robust friendships. See, those things sound the same. They sound like things that we want, but one of them is good advice, and one of them is good news. Because how different would your college experience be if you knew that no matter what, every time you sat down in a class, you were, you were, gonna, you were gonna get the grade you wanted? It would change the way you learned everything. How different would your college experience be if every single person that you met and got to talk to, you knew was going to love you and care about you, and you didn't have to see them as competition? It would change everything, right? Because without fail, this is my fourth year here and I've seen it every year, right? Some of y'all are here tonight and like we're gonna meet and like we, like we may like tell a joke and laugh and have a wonderful time at the first large group of the year. And then maybe you'll come next week, which next week will be in the MSEC lounge right over here. So we're not at the IRE every time. MSEC lounge today, next week. But you may come to the first couple large groups and then and then you're going to start to feel the pressure of school, just like build and build and build. And by the middle of your first semester, I'm going to see you like sprinting across campus, trying to get your class and be like, hey, how's it going? And you're going to yell back at me. It's going great. I'm super busy. I feel like I'm about to die. Uh, and you probably are because you just drank like your seventh iced coffee, which is just an excuse to drink milkshakes before breakfast. Um, and and you and you're going to like you're going to break down. You're going to lose your mind. Because you're just trying to do it yourself. Now, I want you to replace your academic experience with your faith. Right? What if I gave you five easy steps, like five easy steps to a better prayer life? Five easy ways to feel closer to God. Five ways to know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved. Like when I was in when I was in youth camp, I'm gonna tell you all this story like a million times if you come back to REF over the next four years, but I'm gonna tell it tonight because it's funny. Um, but when I, when I was like in like eighth grade and we would go to youth camp, every single time we would go, there was this one girl that every time they had an altar call, like she would get saved. This girl had to have gotten saved like 25 times. Like she would walk down the aisle and, and then like when we would, you know how like you go back home from youth, youth camp and you go to like Sunday night church and all the youth like tell their testimonies and it, was, it would always be her 
And her mascara would always be running. She'd be like, I just needed to know that I know, that I know, that I know. And it was just like, oh, come on. Like, come on. You've done this 25 times, right? What's the problem with all this? Because it's about you. That's not good news. It's not good news if your faith is about your sincerity. It's not good news if your faith is about your decision or your effort or anything else. But what if I stood up here and I told you that, hey, I know that you struggle with your prayer life. But the gospel tells you that right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father praying on your behalf. How would that change the way that you view prayer? Right? How would, how would, how would knowing that God has bound himself to you in a covenant to say that he would have to, like, God would have to stop being God to cease loving you. How would that change the way that you view him? How would that change the way that you view your faith? And so think about this. What sounds better, right? Good advice or good news? And it's good news, but why do we always choose good advice? I want you to think about that. But this is good news about an event, Right? This is good news about something that happened. Look, there's all kinds of news that you can get that doesn't really change anything. Right? Like, literally almost all the news that you get at this point, we just were so inundated with it. Who cares anymore? Right? But Paul is so excited about this news that he says that he's a servant of it, and the actual translation would be slave. And it, it completely changed Paul's life from like, anxiety riddled murder man to being so excited that he doesn't even use punctuation in his writing. Like when you read Paul, just imagine one of your friends, like that one friend that you have that always talks like really, really long and like breathless sentences, like really fast. They just keep going. You wonder like, when are you going to stop breathing? Like that's how Paul is writing Romans. He's so excited about what he's reading that he doesn't even stop to take a breath, right? Verses four through seven talking about Jesus says that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, do you hear how much he's talking about like belonging to God? and being his, and peace with God, and grace, and mercy, and all this other stuff? See, the subject of this good news is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and indeed God himself in the flesh, died and rose again. To quote the great American philosopher Dwight Schrute from The Office, Jesus was as dead as any animal that has ever died. And then he wasn't. And that changes everything. This is the if statement that Paul is so excited about. If it is true that Jesus rose again from the dead, then this power of God, then this is the power of God to all those who believe. That's what this is about. And actually in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes the case that if, that if Christ is not risen, then everything we're doing right now is pointless. If Christ is not risen, there is no reason to be sitting outside tonight listening to somebody preach about the Bible there's no reason to be at a Christian college. There's no reason for you to get up and go to church on Sunday. None of it. None of it matters. But Paul says because he did, then, then it does matter. And if you want to talk about this more, like let's talk about it more. That's what I'm here for. But it's not just that Jesus rose again. It's what comes next. 
Right? Because Paul says to those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul is talking about saints and peace from God. You know, I think our anxiety comes from, um, from kind of two different places, right? There's, there's the one feeling on the one hand that no matter what you do, you will not be able to control the outcome of your life and nothing that you'll ever do is going to eventually, it's going to actually be enough. Or it comes from the place that actually it's just kind of like no matter what, the world is just out to get you, right? The universe is like not in your favor or whatever. But Paul says that because Jesus rose again from the dead, you can be a saint and you can have peace with God. And look, I don't, I don't, I don't think that tonight I have to convince most of you that the resurrection is true. Again, if you don't believe it, I would love to talk to you about it. I'll buy you coffee. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. But I wonder how many of us truly believe what Paul is saying here about being a saint and about having peace with God. Is that you? Do you believe that you have peace with God? Or are you wrestling with the kind of anxiety that feels like you're never going to measure up? It comes from feeling like the world is out to get you. And actually, Paul knew this intimately. Because this was actually kind of what led Paul to being open to receiving Christ when Jesus was like, hey, like, why are you, why are you killing me? Right? Because later in Romans, we'll talk about this, but Paul talks about trying to keep the law perfectly. But he got hung up. I always think, I always think this is funny. Paul, who was like known when he was, the, when he was Saul, like the guy that was going around like murdering people, he was like, yeah, I kept all the Ten Commandments except for the one about coveting. It's like, dude, there, you know, there's one about killing people, right? But no, like the more that he talked about, the, he talks about the more he talked about studying the commandment not to covet, the more he realized the covetousness that lived in his heart. He knew that kind of anxiety. And I think that anxiety probably built to his zeal that would lead him to kill people. Now, I'm not saying your anxiety is going to lead you to kill people. I hope it doesn't, right? If you think it might, again, like, let's talk about that. Like, you know, you have time to not do that. Um, But Paul was a religious dude whose zeal for God could not have been questioned. Nobody could look at Paul and say that he did not love at least his vision of God in Scripture. And then he was confronted by the resurrected Jesus. But the third thing that we see here that Paul's talking about, that Paul's actually not ashamed of the gospel. In verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, so loud. <laughs> um, um, this idea of not being ashamed. First off, why, why would Paul, one, in fact, one Scottish preacher that I read, like he pointed out like, like you wouldn't write that you were, you wouldn't declare here that you're not ashamed unless being ashamed was actually like a temptation that you might have, right? And so we, we tend to think about, um, we tend to think about this idea of like not, of being like not ashamed as like, our own personal boldness in the face of persecution. Like, uh, like, like it makes me think uh, sometimes of like Melissa Joan Hart and God's not dead three where like she goes before Congress and she's like, Hey, you guys are like taking away our rights. And they're like, Oh yes, Melissa Joan Hart. We're very sorry. Here are your rights back. 
And then like the newsboys come out and they sing God's not dead and everybody gets saved or something. I've never seen the movie, but I assume that's how it goes. Um, Or I think about it like this. When I was in fifth grade at my church, I was a part of this thing called Royal Ambassadors, RAs. So, So in RAs, I actually have no idea what the point of RAs was because I don't think we did it right. Um, we never talked about like what we never talked about like the Bible. Like we didn't learn Bible verses or anything like that. We just had a dude in our church who uh, whose life actually kind of ended up like completely spiraling out of control and bad things happened. But he just yelled at us a lot about like being bold in our faith, right? And so like he'd be like, "Hey, today we're going to do an art project, and I want you to draw a picture of you like witnessing to people." And he would like give awards for whoever did the best drawing. It was it was really weird. But he told us he was like, "Hey, if you ever get picked on at school." If you ever get picked on at school, you need to look at, look at the guy that's picking on you and say, hey, man, Jesus loves you, and so do I. And I guess that was going to lead them to repent and whatever. They were going to rethink. I don't know. So one day at school, like fifth grade me, I got my backpack on. I'm waiting for my mom to come pick me up. And this guy, like, I don't know, he walks up to me and, like, makes a your mama joke or something, which in fifth grade is, like, the worst thing you can do to somebody. And I'm like, and I'm like all right, all right, here, this, is my, this is my opportunity to, like, witness to this guy. So I'm like, hey, man. Jesus loves you, and so do I. And he looked me directly in the eyes and took both of his hands and shoved me into a pole and walked away. And I was like, I don't think that's how that's supposed to go. But, like, I go to counseling now, so it's okay. But um, <laughs> but why would, why, why would we be ashamed? And why would Paul talk about being ashamed of the gospel? And I think there are basically three reasons that we would be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. The first reason is if you think about it, the gospel is kind of insulting. Tim Keller says, um, well, it's insulting because it's insulting because it, it tells us that we don't deserve salvation. Tim Keller says that it tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. And this offends moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over less moral people. That, that, that this is the idea that my own morality can save me. The gospel is insulting because it tells us that Jesus had to die. That in order for you to have peace with God, God himself had to die. And that's just an absurd idea. If it's not true. It tells us that we're so wicked that only the death of the Son of God could save us. And this offends the modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity, that somehow living my truth or being my most authentic self is what can save me. It's insulting because it tells us that we can't save ourselves, that this offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. We don't like losing our autonomy. I'll worry about that spiritual stuff later. I'll, I'll eventually figure it out myself. But look, it's also, it's also insulting because of uh, this whole kind of like guilt by association thing. Look at what Paul talks about um, Jews and Gentiles receiving the gospel, Greeks and the barbarians. And if you ever, like, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, like read Hebrews 11, right? Hebrews 11 is this passage that's known as like the hall of faith. And in this passage, um, the writer of Hebrews lists off all these people that are commended for their faith. And they're all terrible people. Like, they're all awful. But we're like, oh, yes, they're in the Bible, so they must be really good. Like, one dude sacrificed his daughter. And it's this absurd idea that, like, they're commended for their faith. In Hebrews 11, uh, the writer of Hebrew talks about, like, Rahab the prostitute, 
There's only one Rahab in the Bible. Like her first name would have been fine. But what he's saying is that God chooses to identify with us in our shame and in our sin and in our brokenness. And those are the people that we're associated with. Those are our fellow believers. The gospel, we might be ashamed of it because it's hard to believe, right? Like we have to wrestle with the idea that we do claim to believe that a man died and rose again. That, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> and it's absurd that, that, that there's this, there's this um, just crazy idea out there. But it's also that thing that like if it didn't happen, like the burden of proof is on you to kind of explain how it all worked out the way it did if it didn't happen. Right, because the, the Jewish people knew it was, it was sinful to ever worship a human, and yet they did. They started to worship Jesus, and it came at great cost to them. And then there's the absurdity of the cross. Even if you can wrap your mind around the resurrection, the shameful way that Jesus died to say, this is God who died on a cross, like it's the most horrible and offensive and like worst way to die. The gospel, we might be ashamed of it because it's a call to suffer. The gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus suffering and serving, not conquering and destroying, and that following him means to suffer and serve with him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. And look, all these things that I've just said, these are heavy temptations. And we just drop pretense. I'm going to assume that we're all struggling with these in one way or another. But there's something here that we're all wrestling with. And that doesn't mean that, that like your faith is weak or you're not a good Christian. It just means that you're paying attention. It just means that you're thinking about it. And I think even, I think even Paul struggled with this, which is why he wrote about it. And yet Paul is not ashamed. Why not? Because it's the power of God. He's not saying, look, this is just a good way to live. He's not saying like, this is a neat little philosophy. I figured out like, no, this is the power of God. He doesn't say that it brings us power or that it has power, but that it is actually power. And it's the power of God unto salvation, right? It saves us and it reconciles us to God and it guarantees us a place in the kingdom of God forever. And again, look at Paul's life. Like his own life is the testimony here. That he was trying so hard to be a religious zealot and do all the right things and then he met Jesus and everything changed. It was to everyone who believes. And this is the thing that Paul develops throughout the entire book of Romans. It's this idea of justification by faith. We're going to spend a lot of time on that the rest of the semester, so I I would invite you to come back. But Frederick Dale Bruner is a, a, a pastor and commentator. He said, do we really receive this greatest of all divine gifts by the simplest of all human responses. Indeed, and this is what makes the good news of Christ the world's most gracious news ever. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the, the Jews demanded great signs. Like they wanted to see miracles. They wanted to see people um, healed and resurrected from the dead. Like they demanded great signs. And the Greeks desired wisdom, right? They, they wanted to know the deep truths of the universe. But Paul says Christians proclaim a crucified Messiah. And so as a, as a teaser to come back, Paul then says that the righteous shall live by faith. And that's what we're going to explore the rest of the semester of what it means to live by faith.
So I'll close with this. On January 18th, 2010, a man named Bill Fong shows up to his league bowling night in Plano, Texas. Um, Bill Fong, you can look this story up. He is a perfectly average looking dude. There is nothing special about Bill Fong. And he gets out there, he starts, he starts bowling a little bit. He's not really feeling it that night. But he, but he, but he gets up and he, he starts to bowl his game. And 12 straight strikes later, Bill Fong has bowled a perfect game. He's bowled a 300. Now, a 300 is not the pinnacle of bowling success. The pinnacle of bowling success is three straight 300s, right? So he bowls a perfect game, but if you go to a bowling alley, somebody there's gotten lucky. They bowled a perfect game, whatever. So, um, and, and, and in fact, as far as I can tell, um, in like all of recorded history, this, this feat of three straight perfect games has only happened 39 times. So it's pretty rarefied air. So Bill gets up there and he starts his second game because in a, in a, you know, in a bowling, in a, because I know you're all league bowling experts, right? Um, he's, you both, you both three games. So, so he gets up for a second game and he throws another strike. He's now thrown 13 straight strikes and then he throws 14 and then 15 and then 16. And in an interview about this night, he says somewhere, uh, somewhere in the middle of the second game, Bill Fong says it was like Moses was parting the Red Sea, that he would move his hands and the pins would divide. At the end of the second game, he's bowled two straight 300s. He's thrown 24 straight strikes. He says that he hadn't even been drinking and he, and he felt drunk. And the strikes keep coming that he throws 25, 26, 27. He gets all the way to 33 strikes in a row when he finally makes a mistake. But if you've ever been bowling, you know that sometimes the pins just fall down. So he throws 34 strikes in a row. He throws the 35th. And here he is. Everybody in this bowling alley is absolutely losing their minds. And I've, I've seen somebody like almost bowl a 300, a dude I've never met before. I don't even care about bowling and I'm losing my mind for one 300. I'm like, this is, this is big. Like we need to call ESPN right now. And here he is 35 straight strikes. Everybody's losing their mind. Crowd's going wild. He takes the ball and he throws it. Nine pins fall down and there's one left and it, and it, and it starts to kind of wobble, right? If you've ever been to a bowling alley, you know this experience, right? And it, and it doesn't fall over. He throws 35 straight strikes. He bowls an 899. And he, and he collapses. He's dizzy. Uh, he just can't, like, you know, I don't know. He's devastated. He goes home. He gets back to his house that night. And he, start, and he gets really sick. He starts throwing up. And he gets, he gets really dizzy. He starts to realize he's actually throwing up. Uh, he's actually throwing up blood. And, and what he finds out is that he's having a stroke. And that based on what the doctors figured out, he started having the stroke about halfway through the third bowling game. So he's throwing strikes while having a stroke. Like, okay. But he literally, like, his quest for perfection almost killed him. But years later, Bill Fong still believes that throwing the 900 would have completely changed his life. 
It would have changed everything about his life. But instead, he feels like a complete and utter failure because he bowled an 899. You and I could probably bowl 20 games and not get to an 899. But he feels like a failure. Why, why would we end with that story? Here's why. Because that's the life that some of you are going to try to live. You're going to try uh, to, you're going to figure out what your vision for the good life is, right? Like a, like a, like a 4.0 or a bunch of great friends and campus involvement, like the perfect religious experience, something like that. That's what you're going to seek out. And look, those are good things to seek. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they're bad. But the stress and the tension of pursuing perfection is going to kill you. And it will do it here at a Christian school. That you're going to walk around, and when you do fail, you are going to feel the utter failure of an 899. You will end up using people, you will end up angry and bitter, and you might walk away from the faith completely. But, what if there's another way? Y'all, what if there's something else? What if there was something that didn't require you to be perfect, because someone stood in that place for you? What if there was a way to not have to have the approval of your peers and your professors, but the very God who made you, the God who knows the number of hairs on your head, can name every single star in the sky, and he knows and cares deeply about you. And if you knew that was true, how would that change the way you approach everything else on this campus? That's what Paul is excited about. That's what I'm excited to study this book of Romans with you because that's what we're going to explore all semester. And if this sounds at all interesting to you, if this sounds like something that's intriguing, talk to somebody about it. Talk to me about it. Talk to your friends here. And I want you to consider that an invitation to come back next week and continue on this journey with us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us. Um, Thank you that it's so clear. Lord, thank you that you have done these things for us, that you live the perfect life that, that we're supposed to live but never could, and you died the death that we deserve to die. Father, I pray uh, for everybody that's here tonight that uh, we would begin to rediscover this, that we would connect with this. Lord, and that maybe tonight would be the night that we can start to see these things uh, in a new light as you're calling us to grow Uh, to grow in grace. Maybe you're even calling us to faith for the first time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.